Let us pray. So, Father, we give you great thanks for the truth of the gospel. We give you thanks, Lord, that you sustained by your gracious hand those martyrs of the faith whose witness even carries down to this day those who have gone before and were faithful to your name even unto death. So, Lord, give us the grace to walk in obedience as faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. Whatever this world or the enemy may bring against us. For we are mindful of the promise that your grace is sufficient. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. We may be seated. Again, good morning, everyone, on this Martin Luther King weekend. And I'm still adjusting to um, church being significantly lower in an area like this anytime there's a federal holiday from MLK Day to President's Day, even to Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day. But I'm so glad you all are here. And again, we've got um, a good-sized group of folks from our church away at Camp Booyah Burr. I pray that it's not too burrish for them this weekend. Um, it's down Scottsville, which is outside of Charlottesville. Yeah, so um, yeah. Um, and thanks to everyone who came out and um, supported our food giveaway yesterday and who helped on Thursday and Friday as well. We served about uh, 200 families yesterday, which is a little bit lower than normal. Now, to put that in perspective, when we first started food giveaways back during COVID, we were thrilled if we hit up around 90 families. So now 200 is a, is a low day, but we had a um, still a very good turnout and um, wonderful time serving our neighbors with food insecurity. And we had a lot for this time of year of fresh produce, um, both the um, Northern Virginia or the Capital Area Food Bank had um, some significant amounts of cabbage and some other fresh vegetables. And then we also had apples because First Fruits Farms that we support who provide us in season fruit and vegetables up in Maryland. There was a bumper crop of apples in Maryland and Pennsylvania this year. And so they put a lot of those in cold storage. They are also now partnering with the Hanover Canning Company. If any of you are familiar with like, maybe you are, I'm sure, like Hanover Green Beans and that sort of thing. And so they actually ship surplus vegetables that they have to Hanover Canning, who cans them for them for distribution to food pantries. And Hanover also now um, gives surplus canned items that they have to be distributed through First Fruits. So um, even as COVID funding has dropped off for some of the, the food banks, um, the Lord continues to provide. And um, we're so grateful for that. But thank you all who served. Um, Turning to our sermon today, I'd invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them and turn to our Gospel reading from John chapter 1. <clears throat> the focus of our text this morning very much builds upon what we talked about last Sunday, particularly in my concluding points of application that I shared. And today's reading is the account of Jesus calling Philip to be his disciple. After which we see Philip reaching out and inviting Nathaniel to become a disciple of Jesus. And we'll look at all of this in some detail in just a moment. But as we begin, I think it's helpful to um, understand just a little bit about the setting or the context. Jesus, as verse 1 tells us, decided to go to Galilee. 
Now, the fact is, Jesus was already physically in Galilee by all indications, probably in the vicinity of Nazareth, his boyhood home, which was a very small village, probably of a population of less than 300 people. And Nazareth, apart from its association with Jesus, was an insignificant town of little, or of little note to most people. But what Jesus does here, and it says he decided to go to Galilee, is to move out of Nazareth into the broader region of Galilee. Now, Galilee was a region far north and quite removed from the centers of power further, that were further south than Jerusalem. And it was about 70 or 80 miles from Jerusalem, which in that day was a significant distance. The fact that Jesus moves out into Galilee and so much of his ministry took place in Galilee points to a consistent theme that we see in John's gospel that we, that we also see in St. Luke's gospel. And it's important for our understanding. And this is the idea or the truth that the work of God of bringing salvation to not only the religious elites and those who were powerful in Jerusalem, but to all people even to those who were rural and poor and marginalized, perhaps Gentiles, or as we read in Luke's gospel and the, the announcement of Christ's birth, it was, came first to shepherds who were people very much on the margins of Jewish society. But the text begins with Jesus traveling out into Galilee where he finds Philip. I want to begin here by talking about the call to be a disciple. When Jesus encounters Philip, he says directly to him, follow me, which could also be translated, come after me. Now, we don't have many other details about Philip, except that he was from Bethsaida. But Jesus' words, follow me, come after me. This is the call to anyone, anyone who would truly become a disciple of Jesus Regardless of who, through whom, or how the call comes, this is its very essence or core. Follow me. Follow Jesus. Become his disciple. The call is decisive, and it is one which requires full surrender to Jesus Christ. And Jesus calls to you and me just like he called to Philip, not just with a human voice, but with divine authority as the eternal son of God, as the Messiah. Follow me. And this call always requires relinquishing old callings, all of the callings that this world places upon us for this new and singular calling of following Jesus Christ. It means letting go of those other things, the things of this world, and finding true life and freedom in Christ who sets us free from bondage to the things of this world and the kingdoms of this world. Even as we read each week as part of what we call the comfortable words, words of encouragement from Scripture for those who follow Christ after confessing our sins in the service, we hear the words of Jesus from Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters, 
That's the greatest trade in all of time and eternity, that we can cast the burdens and the weights of this world upon our Lord. And in exchange for that, we can take up the yoke of Christ, which by his grace and his power is light. And his yoke, which is easy. The burden is light. The yoke is easy. And even as Jesus reminds us in John chapter 12, verses 25 through 26, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Jesus' call to us as disciples is nothing less than full surrender and by God's grace and power following after him with all of our being. This is the call to be a disciple. Secondly, here we see the call to make disciples. Following Jesus, being his disciple, means and mandates that we go, and as we go, we make disciples. Now, we say in our heads, oh, we know this, and it sounds so simple, it sounds so elementary, but how often do we and I lose sight of this and lose sight of the fact that this is at the very center of our Lord's call to him if we are his disciples. Even as Jesus, as we read last week, I used it in my sermon as well, but Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the great commission that we're so familiar with, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And in Luke 24, we read that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Yes, we know that here, but how quickly you and I get sidetracked. We get caught up with the busyness of life, and sometimes we get caught up with becoming inward-focused even in church. Not that we don't continue growing and that we don't support each other. That's part of being the body of Christ. But our Lord's call is to go and make disciples. How easy it is to get sidetracked from that command. Which is essential to being a true disciple of Jesus. New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce in his commentary on this text says this. This is how the number of Jesus followers has gone on increasing to this day. As one has found another and shared the good news with him or her. This is what we see in Philip. Look at the interaction between Philip and Nathanael in verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We have found him. We have found the one to whom all the law and the prophets point the one who is at the very center of God's eternal plan for the salvation of the world. We have found him. 
And the inference here is that Philip has now joined a larger cycle, cycle, circle excuse me, of those who were disciples of Jesus. And that Jesus as the Messiah is, as I've just said, the one to whom all the promises of the law and the prophets point. Now let's be frank. If we look at the text, Nathaniel's initial response is less than favorable. What's he say? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And it wasn't that there is any record of Nazareth being associated with scandalous activity like some cities in the ancient Near East, but this is more of a disparaging comment it's kind of saying like, it's a town full of low-class hicks or it's a town full of uneducated hayseeds, that sort of a thing. And, and really, when we look at this, this puts a different spin on some of what I talked about last Sunday. If you recall, I talked about we must not allow ourselves to become haughty and we must not allow ourselves to be blinded by our own prejudices. And I spoke of that in terms of sharing the gospel, witnessing. But here in Nathaniel's case, his prejudices were a barrier to him being open to hearing the gospel, at least momentarily. Again, last Sunday, we looked at things in terms of allowing these sinful attitudes to keep us from sharing the gospel. We talked about, you know, sometimes our discomfort or haughtiness or prejudice and not, or bias and not sharing the gospel with someone who's in a different economic class than we are or a different race or ethnicity or background or you name it, you can come up with all kinds of reasons and that we need to repent and move beyond these things. But another twist or aspect on this subject, which we need to consider briefly, is this for ourselves. Now, Nathaniel initially wouldn't hear the gospel because of his prejudices, because Jesus was coming out of Nazareth. But the other thing we need to think about is how all of this works in terms of our haughtiness and biases and prejudices in terms of ourselves being teachable. Do we write off how God may use someone very different than ourselves to speak his truth to us, to speak an exhortation or words of edification or even a word of rebuke or correction? And sometimes the enemy in our sinfulness can lead us to write off what that person says, oh, because they are not as educated as I am. Or again, they're from a different culture, a different nation. Well, they don't really understand my situation. They're coming at it from a different frame of reference. Or why would, how dare a woman say that to me? Or the converse, how dare a man say that to me? When God might just be speaking to us. A wonderful example of this that was not at my sermon notes, but the Lord brought to mind right at this point in the sermon during first service. Um, my home church I attended for many years before I went to seminary. It was a large church. And um, there was a mentally disabled man in the church, was in his 40s at the time, um, named Michael. And Michael, talk, was, Michael was everybody's friend. He was at church anytime the doors are open. Even if it was women's ministries event, Michael was there. It was just, and we all loved him. But um, he had a funny way of speaking, an odd voice. And there was a Sunday, I remember, I just happened to be observer to this. But we were out in the atrium of the church, large church, lots of people. And there were two men um, 
really complaining about something to each other. And just out of the blue, I just happened to be standing like 10 feet away at the time. Michael walks up to the one guy who had his back to him, as only Michael could do, and he had this finger, and he goes, boop, 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 right on the guy's shoulder. The guy turns and looks at him, and Michael says, did you talk to him about that? And put his hand down and walked away. <laughs> and it was like, yes, go God. <laughs> because it needed to be said. It was just, it was one of those precious moments. But a beautiful example of God speaking truth to someone, to someone who could be easily written off or minimized. Let's not be quick to write off what God just might be speaking to us through another believer who may be very different from us in one way or another. I have a friend named Chuck who came to the Lord this way many years ago now. We're talking back in the 1980s. I know for some of you that's like ancient history. Um, and Chuck uh, was led to the Lord by a used car salesman. And not to disparage car salesmen, but this is back when car salesmen still wore suits. But this guy, his name was Ed. I didn't know him, but I, I knew of him. Um, he was your stereotypical used car salesman. Cheap, tacky suit, really bad hair, you know, the whole, the whole thing that comes with that. And Chuck kept going back to look at cars but he wasn't going to look at cars. He was being drawn back time and time again to hear what this guy had to say about the Lord. And the guy eventually invited him to church and Chuck came to the Lord. Chuck never did buy a car from him. But he came to the Lord through that, through a used car salesman. Coming back to Philip, he didn't give up at Nathaniel's snarky remark. He stayed with him. And what does he say to him? Come and see. Come and see. It's a beautiful picture in Scripture for us. As we talked about last week, we need to be prepared, spiritually prepared, prepared in our hearts, and we need to seek opportunities to share our story, the story of what God has done and what God is doing in our lives. But we need to not be naive. Folks will often reject what we have to say. They will often reject it repeatedly. But that's why we need to be very careful not simply to talk at people, but rather to come alongside of them in all their mess, in all their woundedness, in all of their sinfulness. And as we talked about last Sunday, become those living epistles this embodiment of the gospel of Jesus Christ where we build credibility because we walk with them and we love them even some people that our culture might say is who are unlovable. And in doing that, we earn a right to be heard, to share and to speak the truth of that story, which is really God's story. And inviting those to whom we're reaching out to, to come and see what God is doing. Lifeway Publishing last year did a study for Christianity Today where they surveyed 2,000 Americans who did not attend church on what would draw them to visit one. And among the findings is this. Over 51% of the people surveyed said they would consider attending church if there was a personal invitation from a friend or a family member, from a friend. You hear that befriending and coming alongside of them. All the other things like TV commercials, postcards, people cold calling on someone's door, Facebook, none of them 
were as high as 25%, but 51% said if a friend invited them to church, they would come. F.F. Bruce puts it this way, come and see. Honest inquiry is a sovereign cure for prejudice. Did you hear that? As we befriend and walk with people and invite them to come and see with us, God and his power overcomes a multitude of prejudices and perceived barriers. And Nathaniel ultimately had a divine and radically transformative counter with Jesus. Look at verses 47 through 49. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. It's a moment of revelation because he came and he saw, Rabbi, teacher, you are the Son of God. True disciples of Jesus, go. And as we go, we make disciples. And then finally, and very quickly, disciples, disciples will see God working mightily. The principle here is this. If you really want to see and discern the hand of God working mightily, follow Jesus, surrender to him and be his obedient disciple, and you will see God do incredible things. Now, to be clear, there are times when God draws people who aren't believers through miracles, through signs and wonders, not writing that off. But if you really want to see God at work, get in line with the heart of God and what God is doing. And you will see him do incredible things. Philip believed. Nathaniel believed. Then they saw. They didn't have to wait very long because John chapter 2 begins with Jesus' first miracle of turning the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. John 2.11, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Leon Morris in his commentary on this text says this, Jesus himself is the link between heaven and earth. He is the means by which the realities of heaven are brought down to earth and Nathaniel will see this for himself. The expression then is a figurative way of saying that Jesus will reveal heavenly things. If you want to see heavenly things, if you want to see the realities of heaven brought down to earth, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus, the one who is that divine link. Link. Too often we hear ourselves or others expressing a prove it to me point. A mindset about seeing God at work, but look at the example I just gave. We are called, every one of us is called to be a disciple of Jesus. If you are following Jesus, if you, if you are walking as his disciple, he has written and he will continue to write your story. A supernatural, divine God story. If you've never placed your trust and your faith in Christ, God's desire is to begin writing that story. And it will be a story more glorious despite the challenges of life. It will be a story more glorious than you can imagine. 
Stories of God setting free, of God delivering, of God transforming families, of God making us new creations in Christ. But we need to tell the story too. We need to tell the story. Every one of us. Even as our bishop, Bishop Chris Warner, has talked about, as I shared last Sunday with our standing committee, which is basically the vestry of the diocese. He's talked with the clergy in the diocese. I know he talked at Warden's Day this year about becoming comfortable and attuned to the Spirit of God and sharing our story. As I said Sunday, not as a TED Talk or something you do in 30 seconds or less at the Chamber of Commerce, but as you walk with people, as we walk alongside of people, not talking at them, but sharing with them in the place where they are in their life's journey. So that the story of what God has done, which is really, it's our story, but ultimately it's God's story because he has divinely and supernaturally written it in our lives, that story becomes real to them and is something which draws them in. As I was preparing this sermon, I thought of a hymn that I've known since childhood, and I didn't realize until I started researching it a little bit. It was written by a lady in the Church of England who was very involved with William Wilberforce and also the British Foreign Bible Society and with the anti-slavery movement. It's I love to tell the story. Some of you may know that hymn. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it is true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. The refrain, I love to tell the story, will be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. The next verse says this. I love to tell the story for those who know it best, seem hungry and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory, I sing the new, new song will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. God wants us to love the story. He wants us to love it so much that we're quick to tell it, to point to him, to invite others in and to say, come and see, come and see. Let us pray. Father, we give you great thanks for the lengths you have gone to to redeem us. That you sent your eternal son, God the son, Jesus Christ, to come as a man yet fully God. To die our death that we could know life in you. And Lord, for every one of us who knows Christ and is his disciple, this is our story. It is the story that you will for those we encounter every day. So Lord, in the power of your spirit and by your grace, not in the flesh, with no haughtiness, with no prejudice, with no carnal biases, Lord, make us quick to tell that story quick to befriend those who desperately need to know you, to walk with them, and then to invite them to come and see that the story you've written in our lives about Jesus and his glory and about Jesus and his love 
may be theirs too. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.